Exodus 15. The Song of Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he has cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The dips congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Still your people, O Lord, pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, on, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed them a log, and he, he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. 
I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palms trees, and then came there by the water. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Aunt Connie. The Song of Moses, after this great victory that God has accomplished over Pharaoh at the Red Sea. May 8th. How many of you know what May 8th is? May 8th, 1945. Victory in Europe Day. V.E. Day, as it came to be called. Victory over Egypt, I think, is what we're going to repurpose it. Victory in Europe. About a week before that, May 8th, on, on April 30th, 1945, Adolf Hitler had committed suicide. They knew the end was near. But officially, May 8th was the cessation of hostilities. People poured into the streets. Parades broke out. I know what you're thinking. There's no social distancing going on. That would never work in the COVID era, would it? People dancing, leaders basking in the spotlight, in the victory. Common people from all walks of life, from all over the world coming together to celebrate a day of rejoicing that the victory is final, the victory's been won in Europe. Even Germany celebrated Victory in Europe Day. It's celebrated today by over 50 countries in the world. It's a commemoration. A commemoration of both the, the scars and the pain of war and the joy of victory when the war is over. The war wasn't completely over yet, though, was it? Maybe for the British it was over, but us Americans, we still had to mop up in the Pacific, do some of that. Amen? But the world still had scars. Soldiers came home with scars. Mothers who had lost sons carried scars. It ushered in the Cold War era. So even though victory was a time to rejoice, the pain was still there. And the pieces still needed to be put back together. And here we have the Hebrews now, standing on the other side of this glorious victory that Yahweh has wrought against their great enemy, Pharaoh. What would they have been feeling? What would you have been feeling in that moment? I mean, remember, leading up to this, your head is still spinning. You've just walked out of Egypt with the the riches of Egypt on your back, you've come led by this cloud and fire who leads you several steps of the journey and then turns you back around and puts you in the most hopeless position possible. What are you thinking in that moment? Before the Red Sea, I'm, I'm probably thinking, does this guy in the pillar know what he's doing? Pharaoh thought that, you know, wandering in circles, the wilderness has hemmed them in. Pharaoh says, is the promise empty because I don't feel free? Pharaoh and his soldiers come charging up behind us, pin us against the sea. Is Yahweh punishing us? Have you ever felt that before? Is God punishing me for something I've done in the past? whether it's something that you know and feel guilt about or something that you've forgotten and you're wondering, did I, did I do something that I don't even know about? Can you relate to that? And then after, after the sea, they come through the sea, resurrected to new life. It's still got to be overwhelming. I mean, let's not take the miraculous out of it and let's not take the human element. You just walked through a sea with water piled up in walls on either side. 
And then you turn and face the desert. And you saw on the map last week how green Egypt is and how brown and sandy the wilderness is. Can he protect us? Food, water, storms? You're still thinking like a slave. You grew up as a slave. You were born into slavery. And so you need a new worldview. Your mind needs to be renewed. This is what we all need. We all need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Paul addresses this in Romans, in Ephesians, in Colossians. He addresses this in many places, the renewal of our mind. As I was preparing for this sermon, I didn't know how to handle, I mean, we've been doing narrative and genealogies, and now here we come to a song. How, how do I handle this? How do I teach this? What, what truth is God speaking to us today through this song? And so as I'm, as I'm researching this, I listened to a sermon uh, from one of our sister churches back in the States. And actually, the, the music leader, the worship leader of their church preached this text, And he preached it about a year ago at this time. He's their worship leader, one of their pastors. He was on their counseling team, is on their counseling team. And he shared about his own struggles with anxiety, which led him to this text. Because he'd, he'd had struggles with anxiety in the past. And then last year, March 12th, 2020, When everything began to lock down, he shared, he broke down. And it was the the church, his other counselors around him that helped walk him through this and helped bring him to a place where even though he's still struggling with the anxiety, he could preach and teach this song. And in that sermon, he made this quote. He said, there's a little bit of an Exodus-era Israelite in all of us. Isn't there? We want to be critical. We want to say, well, if it was me, I wouldn't have been like that. I mean, they saw all of... But let's be honest with ourselves. That Exodus-era Israelite is in all of us. God's just shown his faithfulness to his promise, his power, the power of his right arm as he smashes Pharaoh, his goodness in saving his people and in bringing them through the seas to a new life. He's demonstrated all this, but we still struggle to trust The context of this song, remember, is is in between two areas of complaint. As soon as Pharaoh shows up with his armies, what do they do? Moses, you brought us out here to die. There weren't any graves in Egypt. And as soon as they get on the other side, they start walking into the wilderness. Moses, why did you bring us out here? What are we going to do? Those complaints, when life doesn't go the way we expect it, those complaints are locked and loaded, aren't they? We are just ready to fire. God, I thought it was going to go like this. I thought you were good. And maybe he is good, even in that moment of pain. I'm here to tell you that he is. He never changes. Every good and perfect gift comes from above but we struggle to enjoy this freedom we struggle to enjoy this salvation can you relate to this life gets going and you forget what exactly it is that God has done for you we struggle with this all the time how do we overcome our tendency to forget how do we defeat the temptation not to trust When that journey from Egypt to the promised land is so long, how do we keep our focus? Well, I'll tell you what Moses does. He gives the people a song. Some scholars think this song doesn't belong here. They think it is out of place because you've got narrative 
Now, I don't understand this because Exodus up to this point has been broken up with all kinds of things and is going to be broken more with law and with um, genealogies and with all these other things. So it doesn't seem to me to be out of place here, but worship is never out of place. You might feel awkward. You might be that guy in your car with the windows rolled up, jamming and singing to Jesus. And the guy in the car next to you thinks you're the weirdest person ever. But I'm telling you, worship is never out of place. When we reflect upon the salvation of our God, worship is not out of place. In fact, it's possible this was the first scripture ever written. Let me explain that. For one, we know that the grammar doesn't match the rest of the... The grammar is an older grammar. Think King James type grammar. It's an older style of writing. But we know Jesus himself attributed Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He attributed them to Moses. Yes, there were editors that compiled it and, and, and you know added some things after his death, including his death, right? But... But Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. And so here we've got Genesis and now Exodus. And let's be honest, Moses doesn't know Yahweh until Exodus 3, right? On the mountain when the burning bush accounts and what is your name, Yahweh, etc., etc. And God calls Moses and now Moses begins to learn who this Yahweh is. And Moses leaves the mountain and he goes to Egypt. And he kind of has his hands full in Egypt, doesn't he? I mean, Moses doesn't have a lot of time to to run into his office and sit down and pen Genesis. He's going to have plenty of time on his hands later. He's going to have another 40 years. But up to this point, he hasn't had time to do a lot of writing. So it's very possible this song is the first thing that is written. And then as he compiles Genesis, Exodus, and he puts it in there, after the fact that he had written this shortly after the crossing of the Red Sea. Fascinating. At least it is to me. I don't know about you, but this fascinates me. And what he's doing is is he's writing, he's penning a, a commemoration. To commemorate means to remember. To do something or create something to show honor or to call to mind. And this is what Moses is doing. He's creating something to honor Yahweh that the people could call to mind moving forward to remind them of Yahweh's faithfulness. He creates a song. Why does he do that? Because music has power. I'm glad you asked. Music has power. And while we're on the topic, let's talk about music for a second. Music has power to commemorate, to bring things to mind. The corporate world knows this. This is why they have those little jingles, right? If I say, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, you see, you know. And now you want a Big Mac and fries. Because music has the power to call something to mind. For those of you who say, I struggle to memorize scripture... The best way to do it is in song. The best way to do it is with the melody because music, pun intended, resonates with our whole being. Music is a gift from God. Music is a reflection. It's a window into your soul. It reflects who you are. As a society, our music reflects who we are. I remember when I was a kid, my dad was listening to some oldies. For us young people, for us young people, they were oldies. For some of you, you think, yeah, this is cutting edge pop music. Okay. But we were listening to the oldies, the Cold War era oldies, and he was teaching me something about history, and I remember him commenting that he told me, you can trace a, where a society is through their art, especially through their music. 
And during the Cold War era, we came out with songs like Two Suns in the Sunset by Pink Floyd. The weather forecast is going to be 4,000 degrees, right? Because you've got the regular sunset and then you've got the nuclear explosion. Two suns in the sunset. You've got Give Peace a Chance. John Lennon, Yoko Ono. Some of you people don't even know who John Lennon is. The Sound of Silence. Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend. These are windows into the soul of the society, of what people were thinking at that time. How about, how about this one? Barry Maguire, The Eve of Destruction. Do you remember that one? Let, young people, listen to these words. Don't you understand what I'm trying to say? And can't you feel the fears I'm feeling today? If the button is pushed, there's no running away. There'll be no one to save with the world in a grave. Take a look around you, boy. It's bound to scare you, boy. And you tell me over and over and over again, my friend, that you do not believe we are on the eve of destruction. This was the mindset during that period. The world is going to end in nuclear holocaust. It's a window into the soul of his society. And it makes me ask, our music today, what does it say about our society? Our moral compass, our lack of any moral compass. But not only as a society, it's a window into your soul. You tell me the kind of music you listen to and that you like, and I can tell you what kind of person you are. Just this week, Amber and I were in town, and we were having lunch together, and the waiter, we were talking to the waiter, I've shared the gospel with him in the past, and we were chatting, and he brought up something about music. And I said, well, that's interesting. I'm preaching on music this Sunday. And I told him, I said, you tell me what kind of music you listen to. I can tell you what kind of person you are. And he told me, he told me the albums, Def Leppard, Kiss, uh, some of these albums. And I told him, you're a cynical person. You're melancholy. Uh, very introspective. And he said, yeah, spot on. Nailed it. I, we can tell you who you are by the type of music that you listen to. Art is a reflection of your soul. But not only is music a reflection, I think you'd all agree with me that music is a reflection. It's a self-expression. But it's an inflection. To inflect means to bend or to shape, particularly inward. And music has the power to shape you. Your music will point you somewhere. It will point your mind. It will point your emotions. It will point every part of your being somewhere. Is your music pointing you to Eden? Or is your music pointing you to the wilderness? Or somewhere worse, back to Egypt? Music, the word is catechize. Music catechizes our soul. It tells our soul what is true. It tells our soul what to believe. In fact, this song is written as a catechism. A catechism is a question and then a response. A question and then a response. And we even sang in that way today when we sang Behold Our God, right? The men, you will reign forever. The women, let your glory fill the earth. And this is what is happening. If you, if you heard when Aunt Connie read the text, what happens here is Moses and the men are singing this song and Miriam and the women are responding with the chorus. And there's a back and a forth going with them. This is very common in Hebrew, in Hebrew music. But your music tells you what to believe and how to feel. How often do we feel depressed? And so you want to go listen to a song that feeds your depression, right? But here's the problem. Because music has the power to bend and to shape us, 
why would, when we're feeling depression, why would we go listen to more depression? If you want to come out of such things, you don't listen to music that is how you feel. You listen to music that tells you how you should feel. Listen to music that tells you how you should think. Don't listen to the kind of music that tells you what you want to hear. Listen to the kind of music that tells you what you should hear. Because it will shape you. And in so doing, it becomes a reflection of your soul. Garbage in, garbage out. And we're faced with this trial. We're faced with, guess what? We were just saved, but there's a long way to Canaan. And how do we keep ourselves on the straight and narrow? How do we follow Yahweh when the journey can be decades full of heartache and pain? Psalm 61 verse 2 says, When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. This is what we need. We need our vision not to become introspective. We need our vision to become elevated. We need to look up. We need to see someone who is bigger than me. This is how music can renew our minds. Paul tells us this. In the context of renewing our mind, our minds are renewed by the word of God. This is what reshapes our worldview. This is what tells us how we ought to think. This is what tells us what is true. It's the word of God. And in response to this, Paul says in Colossians 3, 15 and 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs. Songs will catechize your heart. It will tell you what to believe and why you should believe it. It will renew your mind. So how does music, how can music help renew our minds? Moses writes, pens this song to commemorate the salvation, to help them as they go forward through the wilderness. What we will see here is it helps us remember his saving power. In the past, He talks about this. I will sing to Yahweh. He has triumphed gloriously. He's looking back on a past event, a recent past event for Moses. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The armies gone, buried, never to rise again against these people. They've finally fully been set free. So Moses spends a moment to reflect on the past. And while we are so critical of the Israelites wondering after all the things that they saw, I've heard people tell me if I only was alive during Jesus' time and saw the miracles, I could believe better. But here we are on the other side of the greatest victory that Yahweh could have possibly won, Jesus Christ defeating sin and the grave. And yet we forget, don't we? We question whether that even actually happened. Perhaps our problem is this. Perhaps we've got the wrong song. Look what he says. Yahweh is my strength and my song. Perhaps it's hard to remember because we're listening to the wrong songs. We're listening to something that identifies us with Egypt rather than points us to Jesus Christ. And let me tell you this, not all so-called Christian music is Christian. Just because someone doesn't curse in his song doesn't make it a Christian song. You need a reshaped worldview. And your Christian song should point you to Christ. Perhaps our problem is we have the wrong strength. Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And we're leaning on something else. We've discussed idols ad nauseum over the last year here at this church. And we're going to get more idolatry coming up in the Exodus story. So obviously we're not done talking about it. But Yahweh has just defeated Egypt. Egypt. 
right, has just wiped them out miraculously with the waters of the sea. And yet Egypt serves, in the biblical narrative, Egypt serves as that picture of, I'll make a plan. When things go bad for me, I can always run to Egypt. And later on, this is what's going to happen when they're in the promised land, when they've broken the covenant, when Yahweh says, I'm done with you, I'm taking you out of the land, they run to Egypt. And the prophet Jeremiah is commissioned to tell the king, don't go to Egypt. In fact, the Assyrian king, when he comes against Hezekiah, and he comes against Jerusalem, he says this, why are you looking to Egypt, a broken reed of a staff that pierces the hand of the one who leans on it? Think of that imagery. This is what our idols do to us. When we run to someone besides God for strength in our times of trial, in our times of weakness, the picture is someone leaning on a staff, and that staff splinters and breaks and goes right through your hand as you're leaning on it. That's what our idols do, because they cannot bear the weight of our salvation. Only one can do so. And so we need Yahweh to be our strength. We need Yahweh to be our song. That is when he becomes our salvation. He has systematically been destroying the idols of Egypt. And he systematically destroys the idols of your own heart. And he will do so in painful ways. But God doesn't destroy our idols to be malicious. He destroys our idols to replace it with something far better. Himself. We sang last week, Be still my soul. My Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. Everything that you are leaning on for your satisfaction, for your enjoyment, for your salvation, God will shatter that staff. And if you're leaning on it when he shatters it, there's a good chance it's going to pierce your hand. But thank God we have hands that have already been pierced for us to defeat our idolatry. We need a renewed identification. Look what he says. He says, this is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Worship reminds you to whom you belong. And if, you're, if, you're, if the songs you're listening to are Egypt songs, they will be reminding you that you belong to Egypt, and you will never escape the slavery. My God. I belong to him. He belongs to me. My Father's God. Now maybe you're sitting there saying, My father didn't worship Jesus. Worship connects us to a millennia of faithful believers. When my father and mother forsake me, Yahweh takes me up. And you get a new family. You get get aunts and uncles who for thousands of years have lived faithful to Yahweh. Timothy. Martyred for his faith, pastor of Ephesus, Polycarp, bishop of Smyrna, Perpetua, a young woman martyred because she wouldn't give in and confess Caesar as Lord, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Wycliffe, Tyndale, William Carey, David Brainerd, hundreds, thousands of years, worship. It connects us to these people. This is why we love to sing songs both old and new. For thousands of years, the wisdom of the ancients was revered. In our last generation, it's now the wisdom of the modern that we revere. But we sing songs old and new because we are told that we are encompassed by a great cloud of witnesses. Moses, we are told Moses is in heaven watching us run the race and cheering for us. Samson, of all people, cheering for us. I wouldn't put Samson in my hall of fame, but God did. Isaiah, cheering for us. We're told in Hebrews 12 that we have come to the holy assembly of the firstborn gathered in heaven. 
You are connected. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are connected to a global, eternal family of God. And worship is where we bind ourselves to him and bind ourselves to one another. I'm going to take a moment to say something about genres. I haven't said anything about genres. And you know what? I'm not going to. Because God created music. And here's the thing. We may have our favorite and we may have those that we despise. Those that worship Yahweh, those that are truly honoring to Him, He will decide, He will evaluate. And we will spend eternity in heaven with every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language, enjoying music from cultures that are not our own. Learning genres that we don't even currently know exist. For eternity, we are going to be glorifying God together and learning to glorify God through one another. And it's going to be awesome. I hope you're excited for that. When sin that has corrupted our music is removed and now our music is fully redeemed to the glory of Christ. It's going to be so good. We're reminded in worship, in proper worship, it catechizes for us the character of our God. It helps us remember who is our God? What is He like? And we're told here that He's a warrior. Yahweh is a warrior. In fact, there's a song that's not appropriate for us to sing in church. We couldn't sing it, but it's called The Lord is a Warrior. It's from a genre that I don't even prefer myself. It's, uh, it's got some electric guitar, and then it features a rap artist on the third verse. But it is a glorious song. Matt Papa wrote it. Based on the first verse is this text. People pinned against the Red Sea, hopeless. From where is our salvation going to come? And the chorus is, the Lord is a warrior. He fights for his own. He saves his own. And then it goes to the Gospels and it reflects on the darkness of the crucifixion and where is our salvation going to come from? And then, of course, the Lord is a warrior as he descends into the grave to do battle on our behalf. And then the third verse is where it features Shai Lin, who is an amazing, amazing artist and preacher. And he comes and he raps Revelation 19. And it's fantastic. Yahweh is a warrior. He fights for his own. And he's coming back. He's coming back to save us. You realize that, right? He saved them in the past. He ultimately saved us all in his resurrection and ascension. And he is coming back to reclaim his own. And finally and fully deliver us from our last remaining evil. It catechizes that Yahweh is a warrior and it tells us who his character is. When anxiety threatens to overwhelm you, you need to remember whose arm it is that's holding you. He has bared his righteous arm to defeat evil on our behalf for his glory. And the victory is ultimate. Psalm 22 reflects on this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am surrounded by snarling dogs. The bulls of Bashan are surrounding me. And it's it's spiritual language talking about when he descends into hell, into the realm of the dead. And what did he do when he was in the realm of the dead? He preached victory over sin and death. He emptied paradise and he led captive those who had been held captive and he ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God Almighty for our benefit. His victory at the cross, his ascension was ultimate and ascension day needs to become our prime holiday here at Welcome Baptist Church. I'm just going to throw that out there. We celebrate Christmas, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday. We need to celebrate Ascension Day. 
Because when Jesus ascended to the throne of the universe, he put into submission all authorities and powers under his control until one day he finally and fully defeats them all. The Red Sea is a picture of that. Going down into the realm of the dead, passing through to new life. Jesus did that for us. This is why we get baptized. We talked about it last week. As a picture of what Jesus did for for us, defeating our death, rising to new life, and we follow him. Speaking of following him, following him is the hard part. I don't know when you were saved. I don't know if you are saved, if you're born again. You might live a long time. You might not. I don't know. But we have people, even in our own congregation, that have spent decades following Jesus. And the road has been perfectly smooth the whole way. Now, the, the, the road is full of bumps and bruises and challenges and heartache and pain and battles with temptation and sin that threatens to overwhelm. Am I right? And so we are reminded in worship to trust his sovereign leading. We transition, we transition in verse 6 from what Yahweh has done to projecting that onto how he fights for his own. Pharaoh's chariots and hosts he sent into the sea, verse 4. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, not just Pharaoh. Because this victory is projected onto other victories. Because he is powerful, he put his people... He put his people in an impossible situation. I need to remind you, he's the one that led them there, remember? Remember last week? He intentionally brought them to this specific place that was hopeless. And maybe God has put you in a place that seems hopeless. Job certainly felt it. Job was there. Listen to this, Job 23. Behold, when I go forward, he's not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. Does that sound familiar? I can't see God. He doesn't seem to be doing anything. He doesn't seem to care. I can't sense his presence. Have you been there? You're united with millennia of faithful believers like Job, who felt this same way. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But let me point out a very specific phrase in this text. When he is working. It doesn't matter if you can see it. It doesn't matter if you perceive and understand and know what he's doing. You can be completely blinded to it and you cannot sense it. But Job says when he is working because, in fact, he is working. Verse 10, he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. And this is what he is doing as he's leading us. He is leading us, yes, through the wilderness where, yes, we encounter heartache and pain and struggles and the struggle to trust. Will he provide? Yes, we face this. But you have to know he is at work. Spurgeon said, when I cannot see his hand, I can trust his heart. Your worship catechizes for you who God is, that he is, in fact, trustworthy. Even when you can't sense it, even when you doubt it. Perhaps your painful place is the result of your own making. We love to play the victim, right? Oh, God, what, why, why did you put me here? And God's saying, uh... 
Let me show you all the choices that you made that put you there. But even in that, God will use it to his glory and our good. Even your own mistakes. We saw this in Moses' early life, that God is sovereign even over our sin. If you are experiencing the scars, the wounds that someone else's sin has brought on your life, God will use even that to shape you so that you come forth as gold. This is who our God is. This is what he does. He's not vindictive. He's not up there just waiting to beat his children. Yes, he disciplines, but he doesn't punish. There's a difference. Punishment is when that kid just really ticked me off and he's going to know about it. Versus discipline, which is I love my child so much, I want them, I want them to know and to see what is good and right. Again, we talked about this at D Group on Wednesday night. God is a good God. When he disciplines, he does it for our good because he wants his people to flourish. We see this here. We've got the language of Genesis 1 and 2. We've got the waters and and the Spirit of God controlling, bringing life, bringing flourishing out of the waters of pain and chaos. And if your life is full of pain and chaos, God is bringing, working to bring life, true life, abundant life out of that pain and chaos for you when you trust and follow Him. But you must trust and you must follow You can't stay in the waters of chaos. He's going to defeat evil. He does it through our sanctification. Look at what he does. He turns evil on itself. Verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. And he just turns evil's own power against itself. Their own aggression Driving into the Red Sea is what he uses to entrap them. He sanctifies his own people through this. Sanctification can be so painful. Amen? When God begins to change you, because you kind of like who you are. And he's got something better for you. And so he starts to change you, but that change process can hurt so bad. I went through this. It hurts so bad, but the fruit is so good. It will make you someone you never even knew you could be before. It will shed you of things that enslaved you. I had something that enslaved me. It was, it was man-pleasing, and I'll be honest, it still threatens to enslave me. I want everybody to like me. I want everybody to think I'm so great. And God brought me through a trial because of my own sin of man-pleasing and because of other sin against me. And he brought me into this trial. And it was, it was serious for, for me. It hurt. And in that, he gave, me, he gave me the grace to realize I need other believers around me who can tell me what my sin is. Because I can run away from this trial. I can get away. There was a path out of the trial. I knew there was. But if I cut the trial short and run away, again, God gave me this grace to understand this in the moment, that pain was always going to follow me. Because God will have his way. He will have his way with you. And he does so in trials and hardship. And if you don't give him what he wants, that trial will stay. So don't cut his work short by running away. Don't cut his work short by running away from other believers through whom God is using to sanctify you. Because that guy just really irritates me, right? And so if I walk away from him, my life is going to be better. But if there's sin in my own heart that God is using him to purge out of me, that same pain is going to follow me into my next relationship, into my next job, into my next marriage, into my next whatever it is. Let God have his way. James says it this way. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Because in trials, he says, count it all joy, right? Count it joy. Really, James? Are you kidding me? 
count it joy? Yes, James says, because it is accomplishing something in you. And if you try to get out of that trial prematurely, that trial will just follow you. And God will have his way. Because he will get the glory. Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? He doesn't say there's no such thing as another God. He says there is no one like you among all the gods, the spirit beings. You alone cause all to be. And this is where he wants to bring you. He wants you to see that he is incomparable. That nothing that you desire can compare with him. He's taking away everything that would satisfy you so that you could be satisfied with him. Because he wants to make you like Jesus. He doesn't want you to stay the seed of Adam. He wants to make you better. He wants to bring you and make you like his only begotten son. To shape you into the image of Jesus Christ. This is what trials do. Peter, as he's quoting from Job, he says, The trying of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, might result in praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So worship will help us remember God's saving power. It will help us trust his sovereign leading. And it will help us know his steadfast commitment. Moses projects this victory onto future victories. You have led in your steadfast love the people you have redeemed. And then he lists Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan. Yes, you will face hardship on the journey. I'm not going to minimize that for you. Be ready. You will face hard times. Those hard times will try your faith. They will tempt you to fall away. They will make you ask, where is God and what is he doing? But Moses knows these hardships are coming. But because Yahweh defeated the ultimate enemy, Pharaoh, the the superpower of his day, come on, Moab? Edom? If God can defeat the ultimate enemy, can he not defeat anything? And what is our greatest enemy? According to Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, our greatest enemy, the final enemy to be defeated, is death. Death from the power of sin. This is why he says, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Because of that salvation in the past, we know that our future is secure. And so you'll even notice in so many of our worship songs, they walk us through the past salvation of Jesus Christ, the present hardship. We just sang it, Yahweh is my salvation. The present hardship when I know loss, when I know need, I know his strength will renew these days. And when I reach my final day, He will not leave me in the grave. He has already guaranteed victory over our greatest enemy, death. What hardship are we going to encounter that he is insufficient to overcome? His greatest promise is his presence. He says, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, our master, which your hands have established. This is his promise. I will make you mine. I will live with you. This is why David in Psalm 27 says, one thing, one thing I will ask, and that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to behold his beauty, to meditate in his temple. His promise is to be with you. Is that enough? Because Yahweh, verse 18, will reign forever and ever. And I hear George Friedrich Handel's Messiah, right? He will reign forever and ever and ever. He is king. He deserves to be king. He demands to be worshipped as king, to be honored as king. And the sooner we do that, the smoother our path will be. 
Recently, I read an article on worship that was, it was a research paper. Um, the, the guy who wrote it is a professor of, of worship at Southern Seminary, the former worship leader at Bethlehem Baptist Church, where John Piper uh, has ministered. And the, the research paper was on trends in worship. Because we've said that, that music reflects a society, and worship music reflects Christian society. And he pointed out that the older songs focus on the trial of now and the hope of an eternal future deliverance. That was a theme repeated over and over in in these ancient songs. And when I say ancient, I mean everything that, that we have recorded up until like 1920. The newer, especially in the last 10 years, is all about the freedom of today. And both are true. Both are true. But it says something about our culture that we've shifted from the hope of our future glory and the presence of God to the freedom of today. My chains are gone. I've been set free. Not a bad song. I'm not not knocking these songs. I'm just saying you can trace how people feel and think by what songs resonate with them. You have broken every chain, there's salvation in your name. Again, great song, which we sing here. There's a popular artist who wrote a whole album called The Freedom Generation. And we have shifted. Is that a good thing, a bad thing? What what, what do we do with that? Well, the danger is that we take our eyes off the hope of the promised land and we think that the journey here and now is what life is about. And it's not. There's a better existence awaiting us. A new heavens and a new earth, completely redeemed, curse lifted, recreated in the presence of Jesus himself. Have we forgotten how great our salvation is? It's easy. It's easy in the trials of life, in the journey, to forget that that salvation has been accomplished. It is finished. Are we more concerned with the here and now and with the trials facing me here than the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ? Are we overwhelmed by the wilderness journey the challenges that constantly confront us. Your worship needs, your music needs to help you see the reality of who you are, depraved sinner, hopeless, helpless, apart from Jesus Christ, but Jesus has come. And Jesus has redeemed. And so now you have been adopted into the family of Almighty God, where Jesus sits on the throne, our elder brother, on the throne of the cosmos, ruling and reigning. It says that we are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let that sink in for a moment. Do you realize what that means? That we are the satisfaction of the one who satisfies everything. The one for whom everything and by whom everything was created is satisfied with you and me. That is mind-blowing. I haven't cried in a while, so I have to cry. This Jesus is fully satisfied with you because he is transforming you into the person that God wants you to be. And he will receive the glory. He will receive the honor forever and ever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. Our Jesus, we give you praise and glory and honor. Lord, help us to see you high and lifted up. Help us to see you exalted. Help us to understand the magnitude, the the breadth and the width and the height and the depth of your love for us. 
that we may understand what it is, this mission that you have called us to do, this journey that you have called us to walk, and the glory that you walk with us every step of the way, that you will not leave us, you will not forsake us. Father God, I pray that we would see you and know you in glorious ways, even as you walk us through, to, in, and out of these trials. Father, we pray that the name of Jesus would reign supreme, that he would sit enthroned on our hearts as Lord and Master. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.